The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Let's start on this journey by listening together for God's word as it echoes to us from Matthew chapter 7, beginning with the first verse. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye, while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Do not judge. This is, without a doubt, one of the most difficult commands issued by Jesus. Do not judge. Now, these words may not feel as psychologically challenging as love your enemies, or, or as economically perilous as sell your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. But do not judge is one heck of a difficult maneuver to pull off on the balance beam of life. Why? Well, well primarily because we judge all the time. We make aesthetic judgments. Do you like my hat? I do not. We make personal judgments. I could stand to eat a few more salads and a few less slices of pizza. We work at jobs in which we're compensated in a large part because our employers value our professional judgment. In business, people make judgments based on economic risks, human behavior, and market trends. At school, teachers make judgments based on class participation, writing assignments, and tests. On the field, coaches make judgments in regard to players' skills. We judge prospective job applicants according to base competencies and organizational fit. We even play the judge in our relationships. Do I like this person? Do I like who I am when I'm with this person? Every day, we make scores of assessments, and most of these evaluations concern other people. As such, embracing an embargo on judgment feels totally impractical. How can we possibly navigate life without making countless private and numerous public assessments of others. Surely, 
Jesus knows that human beings are hardwired for judgment. Do not judge, he says, so that you may not be judged. In evaluating Christ's directive, perhaps the first thing we should note is that our Lord's words seem to run counter to the general trajectory of Scripture. Isn't religion all about making good moral judgments? Isn't the good book packed with moral assessments? Well, yes, it is. In the Bible, God is frequently portrayed as a judge. The Psalms speak of God's judgment. The prophet Isaiah promises the Lord will judge with righteousness. On the day of judgment, says Jesus, the Son of Man will separate the sheep from the goats. All must appear, writes the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, before the judgment seat of Christ. There's a ton of judgment getting dispensed in the good book, and not all of it comes from God. Rulers and magistrates are called on to adjudicate cases with fairness. The prophets speak judgment to people seven days a week and twice on the Sabbath. John the Baptist offers searing judgments in his preaching. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells a crowd that people should judge each other not by appearances, but with righteousness. Today's text comes from the Gospel of Matthew. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, extended teachings that begin with the Beatitudes. You, you remember the Beatitudes, Christ's list of those blessed by God. One of the Beatitudes goes like this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Here Jesus promises that, that those who yearn for a moral society will have their desire met. Their, their ache will be satisfied. Those who long for a righteous world, a just world, are blessed by God. Christ's blessing in the Beatitude raises an important question. If yearning for righteousness is such a good thing, how can speaking judgment against the unrighteous be such a bad thing? What is Jesus up to in the Sermon on the Mount? How can he both honor people's thirst for righteousness and then swivel and counsel those same people not to judge. Is the good book asking us to play spiritual twister? Or is Jesus simply calling our attention to an important truth? What truth is that? Well, modern psychology puts it like this. We're not nearly as good at judging other people as we think we are. This past week, in a sports column for the New York Times, Joe Lemire wrote about general managers for Major League Baseball teams 
who have embraced Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Why are baseball scouts, the article asks, embracing the research for which Kahneman, is an Israeli psychologist, won the 2002 Nobel Prize in economics? The answer has to do with judgment. Baseball teams are constantly working to evaluate prospects players on minor league teams, college teams, and even players who are in high school. The difference between fielding a winning team and a losing team often comes down to an organization's ability to evaluate all of this talent. Now, what does that have to do with thinking fast and slow? Well, it's like this. Kahneman argues that human beings are, are not nearly as rational as, as we think we are. Yes, we have an impressive capacity for thinking things through, but a lot of the time, maybe even most of the time, we allow irrelevant criteria, personal passions, and comfortable prejudices to overrule more objective thinking. In other words, our heads are very, very good at finding reasons to support what our hearts want. How does this play out in baseball? Lemire tells the story of a scout who, who passed over a pitching prospect who came with a sparkling resume. The scout ignored these impressive facts because on seeing the picture in person, his first thought was, this guy looks too slender, too wispy to play major league ball. The picture eventually turned out to be a star. According to Kahneman, the scout's error highlights a common glitch in human reasoning. When it comes to judging other people, we have a lofty opinion of our own capacity to make good decisions. To put it simply, we are arrogant. We believe we make good snap judgments, and we're so certain this is true that we often overlook hard and per potentially persuasive facts when making a decision. All of this may explain why, some 2,000 years before Daniel Kahneman's research, another wise soul from Israel suggested that people ought to be cautious and a little more self-aware when it comes to judging others. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, asks Jesus, but do not notice the log in your own eye. Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? It's a wild metaphor, right? Now, are you really planning to do ophthalmic surgery, Jesus asks? Are you honestly going to attempt the delicate work of, of removing a speck from someone else's eye when you've got a slab of yellow pine protruding from your own? 
Why don't you start, Jesus suggests, by extracting the two by four lodged in your own cornea? <laughs> then you might be able to see clearly enough to assist someone else. As Jesus lays it out, judging others is not prohibited, but he is clear. Before we go down that path, we have some work to do. What sort of work? Well, today's text offers a pretty good place to start. Step number one, be humble. Engaging today's complicated moral arguments cannot begin with us taking out tweezers and going after someone else's flaws. Step number one requires that we exhibit good, old-fashioned Christian humility. And this means examining ourselves and admitting that we are flawed. We are imperfect. We're broken. We're part of the sinful world that God still somehow loves beyond all reckoning. Owning our flaws, confessing our flaws, is the first step to not being controlled by those flaws. A quick sidebar comment. Everybody always seems to want to confess other people's sins. I once had a man come by my office with a list of sins that he wanted me to preach about. I, I asked him, um, are, are you anywhere on this list? <laughs> he seemed offended. Surprise, surprise. Friends, Jesus doesn't want us to confess other people's sins. He wants us to be self-reflective enough, self-aware enough, humble enough to confess our own sins. This is the path to redemption. Step number two, don't run away from discomfort. As many of you know, I'm a comic book lover. As a teenager, I was a big Spider-Man fan. And one of Spider-Man's powers is his spidey sense. Peter Parker starts to tingle when he's in danger. I've always found this power fascinating. I actually think most people do. Why? Because everyone thinks that they have spidey sense. We believe that we know when we're in danger. And here's the tricky thing. Sometimes when we feel uncomfortable and our spidey sense starts to tingle, we're not actually in danger at all. When my daughter started at college, Amy and I attended an opening forum at which the president of the college spoke to the incoming class. He welcomed them to the exciting adventure of a college education. And he also told them in a careful and nuanced way, that in college you have to learn to assess your own feelings. Sometimes, he said, you might experience in a reading for a class, in a professor's lecture, in a conversation with your roommate while you're walking across campus, sometimes you might encounter an idea that makes you feel uncomfortable. He didn't say it, but I thought, your spidey sense goes off. Be on alert for these moments, said the president. 
because something important might be happening. A good education isn't always comfortable. As Daniel Kahneman might say, your spidey sense might be protecting you from something good. The Christian faith agrees. Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor liked to observe, grace doesn't always feel like a snuggly blanket. Sometimes grace feels downright uncomfortable. It can feel like a hammer breaking you free. It can feel like you're being, to use an image from the Gospels, compressed, squashed, forced to face a whole new world. It can feel like you are being, well, born again. Step number three, honor the other. With humility, self-awareness, and an openness to do tough work comes the knowledge that people on the other side of the argument are also children of God. This means we cannot let our judgments get personal. My roommate in seminary used to umpire baseball games. And he explained to me that as an ump, he would let batters cuss and swear all they wanted. They could say anything in the book, anything except for one word. And that word was you. An angry batter could say, miserable, glop-headed son of a gun. And my roommate would look the other way but if a batter said, you miserable, glop-headed son of a gun, he was tossed from the game. Saying you switched the conversation from a gripe about the unfairness of the world to a personal attack. Nowadays, we say you a lot. Our anxiety and anger devolve into personal attacks. We compare our adversaries to the most destructive people in history. As comedian John Stewart puts it though, everyone who disagrees with you is not Hitler. Personal attacks are never helpful. I mean, they may feel good for a moment, but in the long run, they always alienate. They draw battle lines. They prevent us from doing the serious work from making and engaging arguments and, and from proposing possible solutions to society's biggest challenges. We're more likely to, to dig into this hard work, says Megan Phelps Roper, one-time member of the notorious Westboro Baptist Church and now an advocate for conversations that build, bri build bridges. If we assume that all involved have good intentions. I think she's right. And that observation takes us to step number four, break bread. Three years ago, Brooklyn singer and songwriter Gabriel Kahane wrote an article entitled, How the Amtrak Dining Car Could Heal the Nation. In the article, Kahane describes how, in an effort to try and understand America, 
he booked himself on a nearly 9,000-mile train trip looping through this country. For two weeks, Kahane left his phone at home, he consumed no outside news, and ate all his meals in the dining car, where, because he was traveling alone, he was always seated at a table with three other strangers. This is how Kahane describes the experience. Where much of the digital world finds us sorting ourselves neatly into cultural and ideological silos, the train, in my experience, does precisely the opposite. It acts by some numinous unseen force as a kind of industrial strength social lubricant. To be sure, I encountered people whose politics I found abhorrent dangerous and destructive. But in just about every instance, there was something about the person's relationship to family, loyalty to family that I found deeply moving. That ability to connect across an ideological divide seemed predicated on the fact that we were quite literally breaking bread together. He went on to say, I mourn the decline of complex truth, the ability to hold two sides of an argument in mind, the desire to understand rather than simply to be right. We have, for the most part, retreated into pure binary thinking. Our ability to think dialectically and by extension empathetically stems both from our shortened attention spans and the flattening of public discourse, but also from our fear of being shamed in an ideologically divided society for acknowledging any iota of truth to the grievance of the other side. After a few days of the dining car routine, I began to wonder if the train might be a salve for our national wound, bringing us into intimate conversation with unlikely interlocutors and allowing us to see each other as human rather than as mere containers for ideology. Be humble. Remember the log in your own eye. Don't run. Stay in conversation when it gets tough or tricky or pushes your buttons. Honor the other. See others as loved by God. Break bread. Be willing to risk sharing yourself in conversation with those who think differently. Be honest and gracious. Refuse to shame or demean this is the way of Jesus. This is the path he would have us follow. We know this. We know this because the church actually is God's Amtrak dining car. The conversations we're called to have while rolling down these tracks are not always easy. But Jesus, God bless him, has shown us what to do.
bless you on the journey of Lent, let us resolve to have courage to attend to the splinters in our own eyes first, to hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, honor all people, love and serve the Lord. Amen.